This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, September 18th, 2017. Episode 44, Concerning Turnover of the Kings of Man. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. This episode, we're returning to some straight-up chronicle narrative uh, and diving into a new one. Compared to a lot of other chronicles, this newcomer is rather short, so it's probably not going to show up very often, uh, not like the Lanercost Chronicle or Simeon of Durham or William of Malmesbury, but it does have a few interesting little episodes in it. This text is the Chronicle of Man and the Sudris, a chronicle kept at Russian Abbey on the Isle of Man, and written by a succession of anonymous monks who recorded the events of their own days. Well, more or less. Our single surviving manuscript suggests that, at least as of the mid-13th century, we have four different scribes working on the book in succession. Uh, And in this case, these scribes probably are the authors of the text that they're inscribing, coming in and updating the history throughout the next hundred years. The Chronicle actually opens with the year 1000, but it sketches in the events of the 11th century in a very quick, analytic form, and we only start getting more narrative entries for events from the end of the 11th century, starting with the material we'll hear today, in fact. So presumably the record for the first couple of centuries was copied into our current manuscript from whatever form they had previously, but the 13th and 14th century items appear to be composed roughly contemporaneously with the events that they're describing. Um, But we won't be getting that far along today. We have some connections here to other chronicles we've already encountered. One of the first people to study the Chronicle of Man, the 19th century Norwegian scholar Peter Andreas Munch, suggested that Russian Abbey had a copy of the Melrose Chronicle, which has appeared on this show, Many of the general statements about the wider history that fill in the gaps between local events in the Chronicle of Man seem to be derived from the Melrose Chronicle, though with chronological errors that suggest the Manx monks were working with a rather poor copy, indeed, probably a copy of a copy of a copy, maybe. And the Melrose Chronicle itself borrows a fair amount of material from Simeon of Durham, so it's a bit of a twofer as far as we're concerned. And then, looking forward, material from the Chronicle of Man shows up in one of our favorites, the Lanercost Chronicle, though again, with enough divergences and errors to suggest that the Chronicle of Man material got to the Lanercost compiler second or third hand. But it all paints a picture of a certain degree of collegiality amongst the northern historians, with copies of their local chronicles circulating around the larger region and influencing each other. But the Isle of Man is rather marginal even in this northern community. For the benefit of American listeners who may not know anything about the Isle of Man, and if one website I found about Manx stereotypes is true, apparently a lot of English folk don't know anything about it either, uh, Man is a largish island, about 220 square miles in area, and I'd call that large. It's big enough to have multiple distinct towns on it, and a total population of about 80,000. It's in the middle of the Irish Sea, rather north of Liverpool to its east and a bit south of Belfast to its west. As an American, the only thing I really knew about the Isle of Man until recently was its rather unusually formed adjective, Manx, uh, which as a kid very interested in animals, I knew as the name of the famously short-tailed, verging on no-tailed, breed of cat, uh, and then later knew as one of the 
uh, relatively recently extinct Celtic languages, uh, which is not strictly true. There are Manx speakers today, but the last native speaker of Manx, uh, a man who had it as his first language, died in 1974. The name man is a bit of a linguistic mystery. There are a lot of theories and very little good evidence. Recognizable forms of the name appear in classical writers as early as Pliny the Elder in the first century CE. About the best we can say is that it's probably pre-Celtic in origin. The X in the adjective Manx actually comes from Old Norse, in which the suffix SK has the same function as ish in English, uh, as in Spanish or Swedish or English. So the Old Norse adjective mansker loses the inflected R at the end, because we tend to drop inflected endings in English, uh, which leaves us with mansk, and that in turn becomes manx. The inversion or metathesis of sk to ks, or x, and vice versa is a common linguistic phenomenon, um, perhaps most famously in the word ask. The variant pronunciation ax, as in let me ax you a question, is today associated with American black vernacular, uh, but it's a form that was common in early modern English. One of my favorite bits of linguistic trivia is the fact that Queen Elizabeth I uses the axe spelling in some of her letters, which strongly implies that this is probably how she pronounced the word as well. Uh, and this was a fact I was once very happy to be able to deploy in a conversation I was having with someone who was going on about black vernacular being nothing but a collection of errors. Uh, but to get back on topic, that's how Manx got its X. If there's not a lot of knowledge about the Isle of Man out there, it's probably because it has kept a fairly low political profile since the end of the Middle Ages. There's evidence that it was a fairly vital trading hub in prehistoric times. And when we say prehistoric times... Uh, for Northern England, that covers everything from Paleolithic hunter-gatherers to the Celtic civilizations, which remained prehistoric all the way into the 3 and 400 CE, since they didn't produce any written history until the arrival of Christian missionaries from Roman Britain and the continent. The rise of Anglo-Saxon England and the Scottish Kingdom in the early Middle Ages, along with improved seafaring, rather diminished the status of the Isle of Man. But then it falls into the orbit of the Norse conquest of the Irish Sea in the Viking Age, the 8th and 9th centuries. The Norse basically colonized the northeast of England, creating the Danelaw, but they also established settlements, power centers, and kingdoms in the Orkneys, the Hebrides, and western Scotland, and the east coast of Ireland. Dublin, after all, is a 10th century Viking settlement and the seat of a Viking kingdom. Man, too, falls under Norse control at this time, though we lack any detailed history of this period for the island. What we know comes from fairly scanty references in Irish chronicles, Norse sagas, and a few other sources. It seems the island was ruled sometimes by the King of Dublin, sometimes by the Earls of Orkney, and sometimes by its own King of Man. The specific political history of Man doesn't come into focus until we get to our source for today, the Chronicle of Man and the Sudris. Sudris there is an anglicization of the Norse Suther Iyar, or South Islands, a name for the Outer Hebrides, or also known as the Western Islands from a Scottish point of view, um, but they're southern in contrast to the more northern Orkneys, hence the Norse name. For a time, as we'll see, the Kingdom of Man included the Outer Hebrides and the Isles of Lewis, Skye, Mole, and Isla, though over time it lost these to other powers. 
Though the Chronicle begins with the events of the year 1000, it doesn't actually mention the Isle of Man itself until it gets to the year 1066, which is where our text for today starts. Up to this point, the Chronicle is just a series of brief annal entries, primarily recording the succession of kings in England, Scotland, Denmark, and Norway. Here, the current King of Man appears on stage, albeit only briefly. He is one Godred, son of Citric, and he's about to be eclipsed by another Godred, a Norwegian named Godred Crovan, or sometimes that's rendered Crowan with a W, uh, who goes on to become the founder of a royal dynasty on the island that lasts until 1265, though the reign of this dynasty is not exactly unbroken, as today's account will show. The King of Man is not entirely independent. Early on, he's the vassal of the King of Norway, and as time goes on, the kings of Norway, England, and Scotland all variously demand he pay homage to them and forswear the others, which creates some politically tricky situations. But those conflicts are for a later episode. For now, we'll trace the rise of Godred Crovan and the early careers of his sons with a sidelight on the last days of the reign of King Magnus Barefoot of Norway. I'll be reading from the English translation of the Chronicle included in P.A. Munch's edition of the Latin text, uh, along with other historical materials concerning man. The translation is by Alexander Goss, Bishop of Liverpool from 1856 to 1872. Uh, And I'll also note that at this point in the Chronicle, the years given for the first several dates are considerably off, uh, by about 20 years in fact. Um, So just for historical clarity, I'll replace the manuscript's erroneous years with the corrected ones. Another error I'll leave uncorrected. Our chronicler identifies the Norwegian king whom Harold Godwinson defeated at the Battle of Stamford Bridge as Harold Harfager, or Harold Fairhair, which is wrong. Uh, It was, of course, his descendant, Harold Hardrada, that Harold Godwinson defeated. Munch notes that this was apparently a common error among Anglo-Saxon chroniclers, probably because of the similarity of the sound of the two by-names. Anyway, I'll let that particular error stand in my reading. In the year 1066 died Edward, king of England, of pious memory, of whom it is said that he was the honor and glory of the English during his life, and their ruin at his death. He was succeeded by Harold, the son of Godwin, whom Harold Harfager encountered at Stamford Bridge. The English prevailed, put all the Norwegians to flight, slaying many of them. From that defeat, a certain Godred, called Crovan, son of Harold the Black of Eastland, escaped to Godred, son of Citric, then king of Man, by whom he was received with honor. In the same year, William the Bastard conquered England, slew King Harold, and reigned in his stead, reducing the English to perpetual serfdom. He ruled over the English people twenty years and eleven months, and was succeeded by his son. In the year 1070, Malcolm, king of Scotland, laid waste England as far as Cleveland, and married Margaret. In the same year died Godred, son of Citric, king of Man, who was succeeded by his son, Fingal. In the year 1075, 
Godred Crovan collected a number of ships and came to Man. He gave battle to the natives, but was defeated and forced to fly. Again he assembled an army and a fleet, came to Man, encountered the Manxmen, was defeated and put to flight. A third time, he collected a numerous body of followers, came by night to the port called Ramsey, and concealed 300 men in a wood on the sloping brow of a hill called Shakafell. At daylight, the men of Man drew up in the order of battle, and with a mighty rush encountered Godred. During the heat of the contest, the 300 men, rising from the ambuscade in the rear, threw the Manxmen into disorder and compelled them to fly. When the natives saw they were overpowered and had no means of escape, for the tide had filled the bed of the river Solby, and on the other side the enemy was closely pursuing them, those who remained, with piteous cries, begged of Godred to spare their lives. Godred, yielding to feelings of mercy, and moved with compassion for their misfortune, for he had been brought up amongst them for some time, recalled his army and forbade further pursuit. Next day, Godred gave his army the option of having the country divided amongst them if they preferred to remain and inhabit it, or of taking everything it contained worth having and returning to their homes. The soldiers preferred plundering the whole island and returning home enriched by its wealth. Godred then granted to the few islanders who had remained with him the southern part of the island, and to the surviving Manxmen the northern portion, on condition that none of them should ever presume to claim any of the land by hereditary right. Hence it arises that up to the present day the whole island belongs to the king alone, and that all its revenues are his. Godred then subdued Dublin and a greater part of Leinster, and held the Scots in such subjection that no one who built a vessel dared to insert more than three bolts. He reigned sixteen years and died in the island called Isla. He left three sons, Lagman, Harold, and Olav. Lagman, the oldest, seized the reins of government and reigned seven years. Harold, his brother, continued long in rebellion against him, till at length he was taken, mutilated, and deprived of his eyes. Afterwards, Lagman, repenting that he had put out his brother's eyes, voluntarily resigned the kingdom, took the cross, and went to Jerusalem, where he died. In the year 1093, Malcolm, king of Scotland, was slain by the English and succeeded by Duncan. In the same year died Margaret, queen of Scotland, of pious memory. In the year 1095, all the chiefs of the Isles, hearing of the death of Lagman, sent messengers to Murtaugh O'Brien, king of Ireland, begging of him to send some competent person of the royal race to be their king, till Olav, son of Godred, should have grown up. The king willingly assented, and sent them one Donald, son of Tig, admonishing him to govern with all mildness and moderation a kingdom which was not his. Donald, however, after taking possession of the kingdom, made light of the directions of his lord, and abusing his power very tyrannically and committing many enormities, reigned as a monster for three years, after which time all the chiefs of the isles conspired and, rising in a body, drove him from their territory. He fled to Ireland and never returned. In the year 1097, one Ingemund was sent by the king of Norway to take possession of the kingdom of the isles. When he arrived at the island of Lewis, he sent messengers to all the chiefs of the isles to summon them to assemble and declare him king. In the meantime, he and his followers spent the time in plundering and reveling. They violated girls and matrons, and gave themselves up to every species of pleasure and sensual gratification. When the news reached the chiefs of the isles, who had already assembled to appoint him king, 
they were inflamed with great rage, hastened against him, and coming upon him in the night, set fire to the house in which he was, and destroyed, partly by the sword and partly by the flames, Ingamund and all his followers. In the year 1098, the Abbey of St. Mary of Citeaux was founded. Antioch was taken by the Christians, and a comet appeared. A comet is a star which is not always to be seen, but appears most usually on the occasion of the death of a king, or the downfall of religion. In the same year, there was a battle between the Manxmen at Santwat, and those of the north obtained the victory. In this contest were slain the Earl Othar and Macmaris, leaders of the respective parties. In the same year, Magnus, king of Norway, son of Olav, the son of Harald Harfager, wishing to ascertain if the body of St. Olav remained free from corruption, ordered his tomb to be opened. The bishop and clergy resisted the attempt, but the king audaciously came forward, and by royal order had the shrine opened for his inspection. When he had seen with his eyes and touched with his hands the incorrupt body, a great fear suddenly took possession of him, and he departed in great haste. The following night, Olav the martyr king appeared to him in a vision and said, Choose, I tell you, one of two things, either to lose your kingdom and life within thirty days, or to retire from Norway and never again to see it. The king, awakening from sleep, summoned his princes and elders and related to them the vision. But they, in great alarm, advised him to quit Norway as soon as possible. He immediately collected a fleet of 160 ships and sailed to the Orkney Islands, which he subdued, and passing through all the islands, brought them under his dominion, and arrived at Man. Putting into the island of St. Patrick, he went to visit the site of the battle which the Manxmen had fought between themselves a short time before, for many bodies of the slain still lay there unburied. When he had observed the beauty of the island, he was much pleased and chose it for his abode, erecting forts which to this day bear his name. He compelled the men of Galloway to cut timber and bring it to the shore for the construction of the forts. He sailed to Anglesey, an island of Wales, where he found two earls Hugh, one of whom he slew, the other he put to flight, and brought the island under subjection to himself. The Welsh brought him great presents, and taking his leave of them, he returned to Man. He sent his shoes to Murtaugh, King of Ireland, commanding him to carry them on his shoulders through the house on Christmas Day in the presence of the envoys, in token of his subjection to King Magnus. When the Irish heard this, they were highly incensed and indignant, but their king, following the dictates of wiser counsel, said that he would not only carry the shoes, but eat them, rather than that Magnus should ruin a single province in Ireland. He therefore complied with the injunction treated the envoys with honor, sent many presents also by them to King Magnus, and arranged a treaty. On their return, the envoys reported to their master the situation and delightfulness of Ireland, the abundance of its produce, and the salubrity of its climate. Magnus, hearing this, could think of nothing but the conquest of all Ireland. He therefore ordered a fleet to be assembled, and going on himself before, with sixteen ships to explore the country, landed incautiously, was surrounded by the Irish, and perished with almost all who were with him. 
He was buried near the Church of St. Patrick in Down. He reigned over the Isles six years. After his death, the chiefs of the Isles sent for and brought over Olav, son of Godred Croven, of whom we have already spoken, who was at that time residing at the court of Henry, King of England, son of William. So there we have the first 30 years or so of chronicled Manx history, and already we see established the place of the Isle of Man as a pawn in the great power struggles between England, Scotland, and Norway, and occasionally Ireland and Wales as well. It really reminds me of the dilemma of a Cold War banana republic, ostensibly dangling its allegiance out to whichever side offers the most boons while in reality getting manhandled by the great powers who don't really need it for anything other than the symbolic value of proving their superior influence. Godred Croven, King of Man and the Isles, leaves rather more of a mark in legend than factual history. We don't really know that much about him. Really, what's here in this chronicle account covers most of our factual knowledge, We know a little bit more about some of his accomplishments, especially the way he structured administrative divisions of his kingdom, um, which we know partly because they become the lines along which the kingdom later breaks apart. But otherwise, his real biography is only a rather brief sketch. However, as the founder of a royal dynasty, he enters into a legendary tradition, preserved in poetry and ballads and folktales, where the Norse Godred or Guthred becomes the Manx Gori, and then for English speakers and balladeers, King Gori becomes King Ori, the initial G of Gori getting assimilated to the final G in King. One interesting story from this tradition is that he is said to have first landed on man on a clear, starry night. When the people on the shore inquired where he came from, he's said to have pointed up at the band of the Milky Way in the sky and said, Yonder is the road whence I came, and along that star-spangled dome is the way that leads to my country. And this story is why the Manx name for the Milky Way is the Great Way of King Ori, or in Manx, which I have no knowledge of how to pronounce, so this is just my grasping at phonetic straws, Rad Morar Regori. This anecdote also sounds like perfect fodder for any ancient astronaut theorists out there to latch on to. Um, I haven't encountered anyone asserting that King Ori came from space or maybe the future, uh, but I have no doubt someone has proposed that idea, if only in drunken ramblings in a Manx pub. In a later episode, we'll come back to the Chronicle of Man and the Sudris to follow up on the careers and family feuds amongst Godred's descendants. But for now, we'll wrap up with a glance at our other main bit of narrative from this excerpt, the vision of King Magnus Olafsson, also known as Magnus Barefoot, which prompted him to leave Norway behind to go abroad and shore up his holdings in the Irish Sea and add to them where possible. Magnus's vision is not recorded by Snorri Sturluson in his great saga survey of the Norwegian kings, the Heimskringla, nor is it mentioned by the monk Theodoric in his Latin Chronicle of Norway, nor is it included in Orderic Vitalis's account of Magnus's career. 
though Orderic does rather amusingly say that the Isle of Man was uninhabited when Magnus arrived there. Uh, possibly an awkward idiom to convey that it had no resident king, but also quite plausibly just an error on Orderic's part, uh, reflecting how marginal the Isle was, especially from the perspective of a continental writer, even one very invested in British affairs. Actually, the one thing almost all our other sources agree on is that Magnus went to invade Ireland simply because he was greedy for more territory. I have not been able to track down any other accounts of this vision of St. Olaf to Magnus, uh, a vision bordering on a curse or at least a negative prophecy. As far as I've been able to determine, it may only be recorded here in this chronicle. I've pondered over whether that might have any significance, if it tells us something about Manx's attitudes towards the Norwegian kings, but to be honest, I can't even decide if having Magnus sail into the region with his army because he's fleeing a prophecy is better or worse than just treating him as an aggressive conqueror. Is it an excuse for going on campaign, or is it a sign from above that Magnus is due for some kind of karmic retribution? Or maybe it has little to do with Magnus himself and is just a bit of St. Olaf hagiography, a miracle story that's been pulled into the Chronicle's narrative. I realize that throughout this episode, I've been emphasizing marginality as like a defining trait of the Isle of Man, and I hope it doesn't seem like I'm being patronizing or making fun of it or anything. I don't know that I have any Manx listeners, uh, but I do gather from some of the blogs I perused while putting together this episode that there is some sensitivity to being treated like a backwater. There's also frequently a self-deprecating sense of humor about it, too, but I recognize that there is a difference between self-deprecation and having some outsider poke at sensitive spots. Uh, so maybe I failed to get a job on the tourism board for man, um, but truly, having read the Chronicle and a scholarly history of the Isle, uh, I've grown quite interested in the idea of visiting the Isle of Man. Um, but I'm also by nature attracted to small and, indeed, insular communities, figuratively and literally. And I tend to find the big metropolises uh, rather exhausting. I'm the sort who'd schedule you know, one day for Boston and five days for Salem. My sightseeing list for whenever I can make another trip to Britain uh, now includes Guernsey and the Orkneys and the Isle of Man. And I'd probably shortchange London to get them on my itinerary, which maybe makes me a fool, but I'm comfortable with that. So to end with something that perhaps elevates the Isle of Man a bit after focusing so much on marginalization, here's one way that that marginal status becomes something rather special. We talked about man being a political football for the major powers of the Irish Sea, uh, and the North Sea for that matter, and spoiler alert, Norway finally cedes its claim over the Isle to Alexander III of Scotland in 1266, but when Alexander dies in the accident we heard about in episode 37, Scotland falls into political chaos and England steps in and takes control of man, and holds it in its sphere from that point onwards. But, still today, the Isle of Man is not part of the United Kingdom. It's a self-governing crown dependency. It makes and administers its own local laws. It's not part of the European Union. Uh, it has had its own top-level web domain, .im, since 1996. Scotland and Wales only got theirs a few years ago. 
But all that said, the British government does represent the Isle of Man in international affairs and provides for its defense, and Manx citizens are issued British passports. Um, and on the downside, maybe, depending on your point of view, they don't get any representation in Parliament. So on the one hand, there's a degree of independence and quasi-sovereignty, uh, but on the other, many significant policy issues are dominated by another government, which that same notional independence excludes you from, at least in terms of legislative representation. I don't know contemporary British law well enough to say this with confidence, but it seems to me, on first glance at least, that the man-UK relationship is maybe comparable to the Puerto Rico-US relationship. Except that whereas the issue in Puerto Rico is this eternal flirtation with becoming the 51st American state, the Isle of Man has a small but vocal independence movement, with, as far as I can tell, no significant opposing call for full membership in the UK. Oh, and another cool thing about Man is its national coat of arms, as featured on its flag, which consists of three bent human legs radiating out from a central point. It's very strange and very fantastic. All right, let's go ahead and bring this thing home. Our riddle from last episode was, Now I shall tell what you can scarce believe, though true it is, not foolish trickery, for once I gave my son a pleasing gift, a gift which none could ever give to me, since God on high withheld this glorious boon in which all other men rejoice their hearts. This is one of the riddles of Aldhelm, as translated by James Hall Pittman, and I think it's one where some of the poetic additions make it a bit hard to follow the core puzzle of the riddle. So if you strip off the opening and closing lines, you get the much simpler, I gave my son a gift which no one could give to me. Who or what am I? And the answer is a man blind from birth who gives his child the gift of sight, a thing which he does not possess and which cannot be given to him. One thing I'll point out about this riddle, uh, I think it's notable that this doesn't read as an obviously outlandish proposition that a man blind from birth could go on to have children. Of course, in the present day, there's nothing disconcerting about that at all. But if you have the stereotypical view of medieval life as a nightmarish Hobbesian state of nature where even healthy people have life expectancies in their 30s and life and health are very precarious and only the strongest survive, uh, one might easily assume that if a person with a major disability even survived childhood, then, speaking of marginalization, they would be destined for a life of beggary and helplessness, unable to function within such a dog-eat-dog life. Nasty, brutish, and short. But that's not the picture we get, or at least not the whole picture. How could someone blind from birth go on to lead a comparatively normal life in a medieval village, much less have a spouse and a family? Well, the way everybody does, by muddling through, by making a useful place for oneself, sometimes with help and sometimes on one's own. It's not to say it was easy. That's certainly not to say that people with disabilities or physical differences weren't subject to marginalization and stigmatization. But I think we also have to recognize that the courses of life weren't necessarily as narrow as we might casually assume. I know that's a lot to lay on a riddle that's just a yuletide entertainment and not documentary evidence. Uh, we have to acknowledge that the riddle gives us merely a hypothetical blind man who really only exists to set up the riddle's seeming paradox. But there are, beyond this one admittedly weak example, 
a lot of other representations of disability in textual and visual sources that should make us expand on our assumptions about the possibilities of medieval lives. All right, now we need a new mystery word. And that word is lob. L-O-B, lob. We'll find out where that comes from and what it means next time, or, or more specifically, we'll learn one of its now archaic meanings. Um, I'll go ahead and say this. Uh, this lob is a noun and not a verb. So not something you might do with a ball, nor is it the noun form of that verb, as in a lob, a type of throw. It's something different. And we'll find out what in episode 45, uh, which now that I've mostly gotten past the crunch of the start of the new school year, I hope to have back to you on a more reasonable timeline. But until then, you can interact with me in all the usual places on Twitter at MDT Podcast, by email to patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com, or leaving comments at our website at that same domain, MedievalDeathTrip.com. I'll just comment that I've had a few people requesting, um, in all three of those communication channels, in fact, that I put the show on Stitcher as a more convenient way to access it. Um, I am considering that. Stitcher has some rather unsettling stipulations in its terms of service for podcast providers, uh, and some of those are about ownership of content, and they sound scary, but I understand they're basically justifiable as technical requirements for online distribution. But they also have things in there about podcasters agreeing to promote Stitcher, uh, and even recording copy for Stitcher that are kind of worrisome, uh, even if Stitcher hasn't actually activated those clauses for any podcasters yet. Um, so I know some of you are podcasters yourselves. If you have any thoughts on Stitcher or experiences with them, I'd be very interested in hearing uh, hearing those, uh, either by tweet or by email. And if you're a listener who would love to see this show on Stitcher, uh, tweeting that at me is probably the best way to make your desire known. Um, I'm not ready to commit to anything just yet, um, but I will take requests under advisement. Coming up next time, we'll be diving into the end of the career of Magnus Barefoot in a little bit more detail from a different source. So I'll meet you back here for that next episode. And until then... Thanks for listening.